0: From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Ann Mossop.
1: This is Jessa Crispin, the author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, A Feminist Manifesto. And when I was a child, I wanted to either be a choreographer or
0: a high school English teacher. <laughs> We've become used to a definition of feminism that sets the bar very low to make feminism an easy, universally available lifestyle choice. Jessa Crispin, the creator of Book Slut, author of the Dead Ladies Project and the Creative Tarot, disdainfully throws that definition aside with her unapologetic polemic, why I'm not a feminist. She has said there's been an aggressive marketing campaign within the feminist community to make it less scary, more sexy. As a result, more women are likely to call themselves feminist, but the word has also lost most of its meaning. Jessa, you grew up in Lincoln, Kansas, yes, a tiny town right in the middle of America. Does it fit what our stereotype might be of small-town conservative America? Probably.
1: Uh, it was a very Christian place, and my father, he was a Methodist slash atheist. Uh, and he has this amazing sort of patriarchal beard (laughs) that only developed once he retired and then it sprang forth from his face overnight. Like he no longer had to, had to give a shit. But yeah, it was, it was very Christian, very conservative, very white, very Protestant. And everything was very, a little
0: dangerous. Everything was a little dangerous. Everything outside. The home, everything you know, a sense of wanting to protect children from a big bad world or?
1: No, the other something. way around. I mean, yeah, they told you that the outside world was terrifying, that uh, the city was a place of just violence and sexuality. And of course, sexuality is bad. But in actuality, a lot of my Women, friends or girlfriends or girls back then were being abused by their fathers, raped by their fathers, murdered by their fathers in one particular case. And so it was this strange schizophrenic. Thing where you're being told that it's the, that the threat is coming from the outside world, but it was definitely from within the house. Did you know about that at the time? Some of them, yeah. Um, my, my friend would occasionally show up with a black eye to school or somebody would just be absent from class for a while, but some things took a long, a longer time to be revealed.
0: What was your relationships with your siblings like? Were they your friends and allies? Were they competitors? Well, I have two sisters
1: and it's a two-year... a difference between going in both directions. And so I was the the conspirator and I was always turning one sister against the other. So if I was angry with my younger sister, I would I would convince my older sister to declare war on her. And if I was angry at my older sister, I would use my younger sister to manipulate and emotionally destroy her. So but I was always kind of safe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and they, they kind of imply that we have to be sorry for middle children. <laughs> no, it's actually a really good place to be. <laughs> what did your family show you about gender politics? I mean, you've you've mentioned obviously, you know, the sense of danger and threat in the home, but what else did you see about gender politics growing up?
1: I think it was some sort of karmic punishment that my father only had daughters. <laughs> He had to sort out some issues with women, and I think he's done it. you know he's much better now than he was when we were growing up, but in the town, everything is very is very stereotypical the women, the mothers are mostly housewives or they have a very kind of traditional women's career like nursing or teaching. And um, the the father is the is the provider, and so that was definitely a part of the reality. The expectation was that I was being raised to become
0: a wife and or mother. And did you accept that, or was there a certain point where you started to see there were other possibilities? Well, from birth,
1: I guess. I decided there was no way I was having children. It just seemed like a horror show. (laughs) I don't know what, like I had a a very strong reaction against even the idea of it. I remember as a small child, somebody told me, you know, well, this is, this is what happens. You get pregnant and then you have, and then you have, you get birthed baby and it's terrible process. And then you're just a mother. And it was was like, oh, (laughs) Take my uterus out now, and just get it away from me. Yeah, so I had a bad reaction about that, and it wasn't you know till older that I had a similar reaction to the idea of getting married. After I met some men and dated them, I was like, no, I feel the same way about this. <laughs> Did you have a sense of wanting to escape from oh, there? And yeah, that's the that's the can- small town Kansas mentality is out. Right, if you have any sort of chance or hope. If you are in any way intelligent or athletically exceptional or whatever, this mantra just comes
0: and it's just like, just focus on getting out, you know, just just out. Did your friends and your peers also take the same trajectory or are a lot of them still there?
1: A lot of them are still there. A lot of them got married within the first year after
0: graduation. This is a picture of a conservative traditional upbringing How did you find yourself working in a Planned Parenthood clinic in Texas?
1: Uh, I needed a job. (laughs) Honestly, I was pro-choice in a way that I didn't necessarily understand fully what that meant, right? And I was feminist in a way that I didn't fully understand what that meant. I was mostly feminist in a way to have arguments with my family (laughs) of why I wasn't doing the thing that they wanted me to do. Because I'm a feminist. Uh, That's a category called
0: teenage feminism. Yeah,
1: teenage feminism. Why aren't you? Why aren't you going to college anymore? Because I'm a feminist. So yeah, there was and there was a job opening, and it was for a librarian, and it didn't require a librarian degree, and so I applied and I got the job. And what did you learn
0: from working there?
1: Everything. You know, I had this very intense boss, Dottie, uh, who was a black woman in her 60s. She had a gay son that she'd lost to AIDS a couple of years before I met her. She had been an advocacy her entire life in one form or another. And she was a sex ed uh, provider and grant writer and et cetera. She was just kind of insane. So she would just, we would just be having lunch and she would ask me very casually, you know, so, Jessa, in what ways do you think you, throughout your life, have been a prostitute? <laughs> And then this is just a lunchtime conversation. You know, I'm eating like a three-bean salad or something. And, and says, could you yeah, answer? Yeah, I think so. You And they usually be like, oh, well, I'm kind of seeing this guy and I don't really like him, but he pays for dinner. And she's like, yeah, that's a good example. And, you know. So and, it's a Socratic
0: uh, dialogue of a particular kind over lunch.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she knew that I was very naive. And so she at one point assigned me to watch a lot of very hardcore pornography Uh, So that if somebody came in with a question about sex, I wouldn't have a kind of knee-jerk feeling of horror or outrage or, you know, shame. And so I did. I, I just watched hours and hours of pornography. And it really makes you lose your kind of na- naivete really fast,
0: actually. <laughs> and did you have to talk to people about, were you in a situation where you had to talk to people about things like that, you you know?
1: Yeah, I was a librarian at the Sexuality yeah. Resource Center. So I was people answering would come in and say, yeah. about, you know, questions about anal sex, questions about the condom Broke, questions about... You know, there's a discharge and it does, it's this color. And, you know, so I, I did definitely, coming from such a naive place, I did need that introduction into the real world. In
0: 2002, you set up Book Slut, a place to write about books. How did you make that leap? What was, what were you wanting to do when you did that? Well,
1: we lost a grant
0: at Planned Parenthood. And so
1: the education department was mostly eliminated. Dottie retired and I was moved into fundraising and they wouldn't really let me talk to anybody. Certainly not the wealthy because I have what's, called an attitude problem. and So I couldn't talk to any people with money because I would instantly offend them, and uh, they would not give us any money. So I was put in tasks like, you can update the database, or you can write the le- thank you letters, and et cetera, et cetera. But, so I wasn't allowed to do anything, really. And they put me in the attic, actually, like the crazy lady stomping around the attic. So I had a lot of time on my hands because half the tests I was supposed to do I wasn't allowed to do anymore. So I just had so much free time. And what did I want to do with that? To give you the Internet, which is a really bad
0: idea to just give your employees the Internet. And so I just started a blog. And what did you want it to be? Was it just you thinking... These are the things that I love. I want to write about them.
1: Well, it seemed like a merciful thing to do because I was reading a lot of things online and then just emailing them to my friends and sisters. And I thought if I just put it on a, this stuff on a blog, then they can pretend like they've read it. But they don't have to actually read it. And it's not in their inbox 10 times a day. Like, oh, I found this obscure interview with Kathy Acker from a French magazine that somebody translated and put on their fan page. Like, let's talk about it um so so yeah so that was that was the basic <laughs> idea behind that
0: and you ran book Slut for 14 years did it create a community for you of those other other people who were who were interested in the kathy acker interview from the french magazine
1: oh sure i mean everybody that's in my life at the moment
0: basically came to me through Bookslut. i met them because of it and why did you decide that it was time for it to close down
1: Well, it just became more and more cranky and the literary world just seemed more and more insular and more and more boring. And it was beginning to be rude of me to constantly point out how boring it was. And I didn't want to be that aggressively difficult person. And I didn't want to just be in a position where I was angry all of the time, but I also If you're, if you're doing that, if you're, if you're doing the work of, of the critic, if you're doing the work of being the observer, then you can either choose not to observe the things that drive you crazy and just be kind of bland and toothless, or you just give yourself a brain aneurysm every, every eight minutes. So I I chose just to stop. What do you mean when you say that you found,
0: found it boring?
1: Well, American literature is very boring.
0: So what was being written or the whole situation of an industry going through these convulsions of the publishing industry going through its convulsions and really yeah. becoming more commercial in its
1: yeah. tastes? Both I you know, the literature became more boring because because the world became much more difficult. And when the world becomes complicated and terrifying Uh, one thing to do is to just uh, examine your insides to just talk about your feelings or, you know, whatever. And so I think that that's happening with American literature, that instead of being up to the task of understanding and distilling the complications of the world, we just are getting a lot of books about quiet domestic moments and you know, uh, I read a short story today that somebody sent me. Like, oh, isn't this good? And it was just like some middle-aged, upper-middle-class woman's short story about how disappointing her marriage is. I just would rather have my uterus scraped than read something like that again. And that's part of it. And then also the critical culture got uh, very boring because... In a similar way, uh, responding to anxiety and uncertainty is to uh, do that. We're only going to publish positive reviews thing. And more and more outlets started saying that, that they're only going to do positive reviews, which means they're just going to review their friends. Or they're. Ju- it's a very safe thing where, how can you only write good reviews if unless it's so tightly controlled that you know exactly what's going to happen?
0: What are the long-term consequences of that, do you think?
1: Terrible literature in a culture that's devoid of meaning. And, you know, I think when we have these moments of totally dead culture, you know, to me, everybody is talking about Trump in this, or Trump's America, in the metaphor of Hitler, right? But before Hitler, there was Weimar, and this huge cultural outpouring. This to me feels like pre-revolutionary France, when everything is just rococo and flat. And yet very curly. Yes, and very curly and if the guillotine
0: if the guillotine comes out, I'm not gonna I'm not really gonna complain. You know, in the last few years, winding up books flat, you've published now three books. Mm-hmm. The first one of those, The Dead Ladies Project. Tell us about what you wanted to do with that book. I don't know. <laughs> Leave home again.
1: Well, I was already away from home and I was already living this very kind of fractured existence where I was just on the road all of the time. And I guess I wanted some sort of way of organizing that so that it didn't quite feel like chaos. And so you give yourself a project, right? So just give yourself a project and then you have this uh, organizational structure and that bestows meaning. But I also wanted to write my own canon. For so many years, I've been told what books are important. And I don't believe them anymore. So I, I wanted to write about the books that were in the art that was important to me.
0: It's very interesting when you look at those three books that you've written, published recently all of them could barely be more different so your next book was the creative tarot Mm
1: -hmm.
0: how did your experience with tarot start
1: as a teenager who wore too much black the usual way (laughs) that people are introduced to the tarot i'd always been interested in mysticism and then i was trying to freak out my town and my family so i started you know dyeing my hair pink and that sort of stuff but It didn't really take until I was in my mid-20s and I had a really good tarot reading and then I understood, oh, this is what it is. It's not prognostication. It's a storytelling technique. And the story you're telling is just what's happening to you. And finding a way to tell that story in a more intuitive and open place then that kind of driving obsessive thinking of these bad things are happening to me because I am bad. That was very helpful to me. And then I just started learning for for years and years before I decided to be in any way public about the fact that I was really into tarot.
0: And you've written, you know, that you were terrified to come out as a tarot reader, you know, that it's the fastest way to lose people's respect in an intellectual arena. But you are very convincing, I think, in the way you talk about it as a technique for storytelling and a way of stimulating different, you know, different kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. So do you, you know, are you reconciled to being publicly known as someone interested in tarot?
1: Well, it's lucky that the culture shifted in the way that it did too, because all of a sudden everybody is a witch. <laughs> Suddenly, witchcraft is the cool is the cool thing, and that wasn't true a couple of years ago. And I don't know how that no, happened. That was exactly. It was that then. Yeah, <laughs> but it just happened so fast where everyone was like, "No, I'm a witch. I'm a witch now. I'm going to hex Trump," and so that was helpful because otherwise, I mean, who who knows what. <laughs>
0: Talk about why I'm not a feminist. I've read an interview that it came out that it started as a drunken party rant. That, yeah, but obviously for that to happen, it was things that you had been thinking and dwelling on. How did that come about? Uh, it was three martinis. Three martinis that did
1: it. No, I had just written a piece that had uh, come out in the Boston Review about centering trauma as the essential experience of feminism or womanhood, and let's just say the response was not hugely positive. And at the same time, a friend of mine, Laura Kipnis, who's a brilliant writer, uh, she wrote a piece about uh, campus consent laws. And the response to her piece was insane. Her students at the university where she taught, protested, went out into the streets and marched against her, uh, saying that she had created a hostile uh, environment and she should be removed from her tenured position. And she was not removed from her tenured position, but she did have to go undergo this bizarre secret tribunal uh, to determine whether or not she had uh, acted inappropriately by writing an essay. So this, these two things are happening concurrently. And her, so her experience with outrage feminism, and my experience with the negative reaction to the stories of trauma, and three martinis and a steak with two friends who happen to be publishers, I just go on a rant about the state of feminism, and they were, and they said it should be a book I was like yes it should because after that much Jen you'll say yes to anything
0: <laughs> and uh, what can be interpreted as women dissing feminism or other women has always you know got huge potential as a, as a kind of a, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in the feminist marketing kind of world yes In the book, you make very strong connections back to the second wave of the feminist movement. Why is that important?
1: Well, one of the reasons is that the second wave didn't happen in Kansas, (laughs) at least not in my town. I was coming of age during the third wave, and I definitely, I had access to some of it, mostly through the music, but it wasn't necessarily immediately relevant to my life because the dismantling of the nuclear family and marriage and these very traditional roles for women had not happened in my family or in my town. And there weren't any examples of different ways to do things. So for me, that work was much more essential than third wave feminism, which was much more interested in sex and personal liberation and that sort of stuff. And that, that was another 10 years, uh, for me,
0: uh, before that felt in any way relevant. And I mean, and what you also point out in the book is the way that, that many of the ideas from that period have, have been put aside by women and by You know, by any participants in that kind of conversation, because they're in fact too scary, too radical, Mm -hmm. too feminist (laughs) in that way. So, so what we have is a situation where, you know, many of the ideas and so on have been out there at various times, but you know, you're seeing a, a swing back to a very anodyne, universalizing version of feminism. What do you think drives this? I mean, these are very complicated complicated issues in some way to unpick these questions of what makes certain kinds of social change happen Mm -hmm. and why. But why do you think this happened?
1: Because we got access to the power center. And it's very easy to criticize corporate culture when you can't even get into a middle position. If something is denied to you, It's very easy to criticize that thing and say, this is bullshit. But if you're allowed to have that thing and have the benefits of it, then you're not going to criticize it so much. Then you're going to look and say, oh, well, we can reform it from the inside. And that was the case, I think, with a lot of things like from, yeah, politics to corporate culture to marriage, even this idea that, you know, there were all these second wave feminists who, who marriage needs to be abolished, and all these queer theorists who were like, marriage needs to be abolished. And then marriage became about romance rather than patronage and and lineage and contracts. Contracts. Now it's supposed to be about love. And so we just decided, oh, well, uh, we'll we'll just reform it. We'll just renegotiate that contract uh, personally and not look at a larger system of reform. But I don't know how one couple is supposed to undo centuries of symbolism, uh, centuries of manipulation and control, and it's just... It just seems like a misguided way of going about things. But it's easier
0: to participate than it is to uh, reform. What you see the evidence is, is in fact, individual couples can't. Right. Uh, you, we still and have. You, you see it in a you know in a number of ways that the divorce rates, but also the fact that those enduring pillars of marriage have not shifted, which is who does the majority of you know, the things to do with child rearing or maintaining, you know, domestic labor and emotional labor. So,
1: and even who benefits, you know, men still um, get pay raises when they get married and they still live longer
0: if they're married. Um, you've talked a little bit about, about outrage culture and, you know, this implicit or explicit embrace of victimhood, but you also talk in the book about, about the tone of the communication the whole phenomenon of takedown activism, that, that mm-hmm. you know, the kind of thing that you saw in Laura Kipnis' case. What are the most damaging effects of that culture, do you think?
1: Well, I think it creates a culture of fear. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't actually do anything, but it feels really good. And I'm not necessarily worried about individual cases. The individual cases are, yes, unfortunate, but I'm not arguing from a position of, you know, advocating that Tim Hunt be restored to the job that he lost or whatever. I'm more worried about what happens when a population, when a nation, when any sort of group goes in out into the world and decides they're they are the victim and that because they are the victim, anything that needs to happen to make them feel okay or to rebalance power is justified somehow. So we see that all of the time. We see that in uh, you know, white nationalist groups talking about themselves as a victim. We see that in certain nations like Israel and certainly Serbia and other sorts of locations of atrocity. That mentality of I've been put down, I will not be put down again. I do not have to think about the consequences of my actions.
0: One of the other really interesting things about the way you look at these issues is to look at a trend to this kind of emptying out of feminism, but it's also a shift from a view of collective Issues for groups of people, systems of power, to looking at how these operate in individual lives, so that the issues for a feminism that kind become, if not merely thinking about yourself, mm-hmm. thinking about the the possibilities of individual women, mm-hmm. but also stepping away from the possibility of any kind of collective action as well as collective goals. You know, so you're really emphasising the the importance of. Thinking collectively, but also of relearning how to act collectively. How do you think it might be possible to shift in feminism, as in other things, an incredibly individualistic consumer mindset?
1: Well, we need to start going to each other's protests and we need to start stop thinking about what's good or bad for us and move beyond that space. Just two weeks ago, I think it was. Feminists took up the call to, you know, hashtag delete Uber because there was a a large sexual harassment case. So... There's been shit known about Uber for years, about how they violate city ordinances, about union busting, about et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But suddenly because there's a sexual harassment case, this becomes a feminist issue. We shouldn't look at this these things as uh so if somebody does a bad thing to a woman, then we'll get involved. And it's the you know Black women have definitely been critical of white women for not showing up to Black Lives Matter movements. And gays have been critical of of feminists for not showing up for them and et cetera. So we need to understand that the system that oppresses us oppresses everybody else. So any sort of collective action that we can do together and understanding that we're all on the same side uh, is I think important, but also just the way that we organize our communities and organize our cities. Even I think these are deeply feminist issues. These issues of belonging and community. Yeah, every time I say the the word community, I, I kind of wanna, I kind of wanna die because it's one of those buzzwords <laughs> that that sounds nice and has this kind of, but it has this vague notion of what what does community mean. As, as a person from a small town, I know that community, uh, can be used to manipulate and control and to keep you from deviating from norms. Um, so that idea needs to be rebuilt into acceptance of eccentricity and that the acceptance of wildness Because otherwise, then we just get back into this kind of small town mode, which I think is a problem with feminism, this idea, you know, you have to use the right language all of the time or you'll be kicked out. So there needs to be a kind of wider acceptance among the
0: feminist community, you know, and that interesting question about the punitive reaction to, you know, for example, the use of the wrong language or Mm -hmm. things, your point about acceptance and also that some of those outrage culture questions, they might feel good to people, but they're not really achieving anything what is your next writing project oh that's a secret <laughs> is it going to be a, a, another as different from each of the other ones
1: you know i think of these three books as very connected and kind of going at the same question from very different angles so hopefully and if it's the pro- you know I'm, I'm in the beginning stages of it now it's about a different question but yeah, all three of them were basically how do you be a woman in a public space? Because that's a new question. <laughs> that's only a couple of generations old question, and people are still figuring that out. So coming at it from the angle of being a traveler and a kind of single person and an artist for the Dead Ladies Project and the Creative Tarot, it's more about being like having these um, feminine attributes like intuition and mysticism that have been very degraded in our culture. And then how do you think through intellectually uh, how your political position and your ideology for this? So to me, they're a set. Um, and I hope it, this set is over because I'm a little bit bored.
0: <laughs> well, we'll we'll wait for an uh, interesting surprise <laughs> in hopefully uh, not, to, not too distant future. Thank you very much, Jessica Crispin. Thank you for having me. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiaway, we're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.